0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them. Andrea is my mom, she's a librarian, I am not my mom or a librarian. I'm Nate, and this is Dried Up Brain, and it's a podcast where we read things and talk about them, and, uh... For this episode, we read The Postman Always Rings Twice by James M. Cain.
1: Spoiler alert, The Postman does not even ring once.
0: There's no postman. So there's two questions I wanted to ask you about this story. Uh, one was, what is up with the title? Because there's no, I don't even think they mention a postman at all, at any point uh, in the story. And then two, what's up with cats in this story? Because there's a lot of cat stuff in here, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. The thing I'm most interested in is the title, but we can get to that later if you want to talk about some other stuff first.
1: Yeah, that's just basically... I mean, one of the things that we're going to be talking a lot about is this whole um, American-based genre of crime fiction, which is also called Hard-Boiled Detective or uh, American Noir.
0: Uh, Yeah, I... Think that like a lot of people I will call I, I this I've heard this called a hard boiled detective story. I've heard James Cain, M Cain referred to as a hard boiled detective writer. But I've also heard people just um, use the term hard boiled sans detective or hard boiled crime or just refer to him as a crime writer. I've also heard uh, I think it's Roman Noir, which yeah. I don't really know. I guess that's just written Noir, right?
1: Yes. Well, here's the thing. Let's talk a little bit about James M. Cain, because he's a really interesting writer and character. He was born in 1892, and he died in 1977. And he's an American writer, but he started his career as a journalist. And he's often known as one of the generators of the hard-boiled crime genre, which is specifically... And most popularly, like an American drama, he left New York. He lived in New York, and he was a journalist. He left New York to become a screenwriter in Hollywood. After World War One, he was in the war. He was a uh, he was an army journalist in the war, and that's how he started his career as a journalist. And he did often cover the crime beat, so he had experience with journalism and uh, crime writing.
0: I mean, this could just be like confirmation bias or something, or also I might be using the term confirmation bias wrong, but I can see now, after having read this, it makes sense to me that he was a reporter. There's like a certain kind of, well, I think in terms of definition, if you ask me to define my shirt's inside out, um... (laughs) That's unrelated.
1: <laughs> so the term, I looked this up, the term Roman noir um, applies to noir fiction, but specifically it's fiction with flawed characters.
0: Okay, so what I was going to say before I got distracted by my shirt, which is if you asked me to define this sort of genre or style, I would say that it's pretty much crime and detective fiction with like a strain of kind of Prohibition era and later sort of, like, realism. Where, you know, there's... there's Which in turn means that there's often a sort of stranded nihilism in it. We did a whole episode about the third man, which I think is along the same lines. I mean, that's more of, like, a detective story with a kind of, like, non-traditional detective as the protagonist. Uh, whereas this is just a crime story largely centered on two criminals who attempt to commit a specific crime and then deal with the backlash but there is this kind of like not quite absurdist but this kind of like almost yeah almost like darkly absurd humor to this the the way that everything just kind of goes wrong it's all the strange sort of details of the crime and the violence committed here where it's like they try to do it one time and it rude They try to do it one time, and improbable circumstances prevent the crime from going off the way they intend. And then they do it, but it's all sort of, like, not quite right. And they get manipulated into an unadvantageous situation. And then they appear to have gotten away, and things bubble up. But then, like, the ultimate ending of the story is a thing that doesn't really have anything to do with the actual, like, crime plan that they come up with. You know, and it feels like the kind of thing where you would read a story about these weird murderers, and then the end of the story, of the news story, instead of there being something satisfying where they're like caught by detectives or they kill each other in a Mexican standoff, it would just be like, and later, so and so died from food poisoning. And you're like, okay, sure. I guess that just happens in real life. And this has that kind of quality to it too, where it's like, essentially when you commit like an elaborate crime like this, you construct a narrative around yourself. And this story is kind of like, well, that narrative doesn't really mean much in like the world. And sometimes you just die in an unrelated car accident and go to jail for a murder. You didn't commit.
1: Well, I think if you think that hard boiled or noir fiction is sort of dark, like the American version is a darker version. Um, there's oftentimes, um, sex or really, uh, kind of contentious relationships in it Mm -hmm. and you know there's this kind of like um, there's a rise in graphic violence which I guess previous to the 1930s and 40s you didn't see a lot of like graphic violence and I think you see that in noir fiction but then also the characters are sort of they're like self-destructive and the victims of the crimes are often as guilty and as corrupt as the people committing the crimes And there's a lot of sort of like dark intentions and there's a lot of plotting and scheming. And it sort of takes crime out of being sort of like a thing where a guy holds up a bank to being like this like malicious act that's planned and plotted. I mean, sometimes the plot goes awry, which is kind of what happens in this novel. But I think that's kind of like what you're seeing is like this birth of like crime fiction but then also sort of melding it. Especially James M. Kane is like really good at melding that. Along with like character driven action. And developing sort of the kind of like dark themes that he's known for. Like you start to see that. Like this is a story that's in essence the story of a love triangle that's gone bad. And I think that's kind of what you see in James M. Kane. He focuses on... The Characters, their motives, the emotional tension that happens in the story, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone like, you know, like Dashiell Hammett, where the crime is the center of the story. This, the postman always rings twice. The tension is sort of comes from the relationship between Cora and Frank and her husband.
0: Yeah, I just want to, real quick, low touch back on the Roman noir thing, just so people are clear. So that, what that literally means is novel black, I guess, in French. But I think the idea is it's a backwards term. Like, this hard-boiled fiction, hard-boiled crime fiction, hard-boiled detective stories influences the genre that will come to be called film noir in cinema. And then working backwards, some of that stuff is rebranded as roman. Roman, Roman noir, where it's just a noir story written in the form of a novel. And then later on, you have writers who are influenced by the movie specifically and not so much their literary antecedents, who then their stuff is probably more accurately termed Roman noir.
1: I think what's interesting is... James M. Kane is not a detective writer, and a lot of his, his most famous novels, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Mildred Pierce, and Double Indemnity, aren't really detective driven. And I think the reason why he keeps putting, they keep putting him in that genre, partly is because of the fact that like, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and Double Indemnity, are iconic noir films. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of feel like it's kind of just because the film isn't, like, iconic representation of what noir film is, his writing is automatically looped
0: in there. But I don't think it's that far off. I mean, if if you're thinking about someone like Raymond Chandler, like, I think the only real difference between, like, the, the, the big structural difference between those is that, like, the crimes are very similar. It's just the, like... The focal point is shifted. Because, like, there is a detective in this story. He's not really a character. He's more of a plot device. But there is, like, a private detective who's actions inform the plot. In a Raymond Chandler story, you have similar crimes of passion, thorny love triangles, femme fatales, and whatnot that you get in these James M. Kane stories. But you have this sort of figure of the detective who's a constant through multiple stories, but who's there to kind of like cut through and we experience the narrative through him assembling it through his investigation. Whereas this, the focus is on the criminals and the narrative just happens in real time. So it's, it's almost, I'm not even that the focus is shifted. It's that the time scale is slightly tweaked so that like a detective stories essentially all happen in the postscript. Whereas these James M. Kane stories happen uh, in the present.
1: I also think there's, I mean, there's some things that James M. Kane does like the crime writers like Dashiell Hammond and Chandler, and we'll talk about that. He does things like his novels are always set in contemporary times. They're always involving people who have relationships. They're always sort of people who are on their down and outs. It's kind of like almost like it well, John Steinbeck did write a crime novel. I'll say, if John Steinbeck wrote a crime novel, it would be mm. James N. King. But that's not true because he already did write a crime novel. But I feel like he is oftentimes linked in with the you know this genre. But I feel like he also fits very well in conversations where you talk about Hemingway and Faulkner because the style that he writes in is really technically sophisticated. I mean, he doesn't use a lot of extra adjectives. He's not... There's no purple prose. There's none of that sort of, like, gangster slang that really becomes prevalent in, like, 1950s detective writing, which is nice. And I think, like, he's a really interesting writer because this is his first novel, and it's, like, technically perfect, highly acclaimed, very popular, still relevant to this day. Like, he hit it out the park just on his first novel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think there's also something of like the gothic in this. I don't think it's just due dissimilar to some of the Southern Gothic um writing that we've talked about on this podcast before with like Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullers. Uh, like the other difference there would be that Frank would be, rather than the protagonist in a Southern Gothic story, it would the plot would be almost exactly the same, except he would be a secondary character. Well
1: who I mean isn't Frank drives
0: the um, hmm?
1: isn't I mean, when I read this, I thought immediately of Flannery O'Connor's, you know, A Good Man is Hard to Find, like this kind of like, I mean, Frank is that kind of dangerous drifter that, you know, you, your mother warned you about. I mean, he literally just shows up out of nowhere and just like wreaks havoc in these poor people's lives. But I wanted to sort of on a side note, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, James Kane himself. And one of the things I thought was most interesting when I was researching about him is that he was an early advocate for writers' rights. Mm -hmm. And he had this idea that he wanted to create this copyright union to protect writers, especially screenwriters and, and journalists, protect their intellectual property. But interestingly enough it wasn't very popular because the screenwriters felt that if they belonged to a group or a union like that, they wouldn't get jobs.
0: Well yeah, I mean they already got a lot of they already have to worry about getting called communists. Like I could see why they would be wary of that. I'm I don't know.
1: Also, I mean I guess in twenty twelve there was a they found the lost, nearly complete unknown James M. Kane novel called The Cocktail Waitress, which I read. And I thought that was interesting because it's written in his classic noir style, but it takes place in the 1960s. Interesting. Very interesting. So this book, The Postman Always Runs Twice, is, like we said, Kane's first novel. It was published in 1934 to, like, sort of worldwide success. It was critically acclaimed. It was a best-selling novel. Um it's listed as Modern Library's one hundred best novels, which was the first time that I had read it when I did that reading list.
0: What's at the top? are those in order? And if so, uh, what is at the top?
1: Uh I don't know. I have we'll have to go look at that. But I um I think what made this really popular and especially what brought it sort of the acclaim that led to the movies and everything, was that it was very popular with US soldiers during World War Two. I guess the army had at one point made a list of novels that they were going to reprint to give to the soldiers in World War II, and this was one of the army editions that they did, and it became very popular, and and that style of writing became very popular World War II soldiers because they really could relate to, like, what James and Kane was saying about relationships and mm-hmm. they enjoyed this sort of gritty It sort of appeals
0: to their intense fear of getting cucked while they're away in the <laughs> Could army. Be. Uh So I did look up that list. Uh, I don't know if it's, I think it might be in order. Number one is Ulysses.
1: That list tricked me because I thought I was going to read one novel per line and then it turned out that it had Anthony Powell's A Dance through time, which ended up being, like, a 16-volume novel that took me, like, six months to. Reach. Yeah,
0: it's also like a ragtime. Wait, is that that one's multiple volumes, too, isn't it?
1: No, I think it's just one. I'm
0: thinking of something else, then. There were uh, a couple
1: of them that were multiple volumes.
0: Yeah. It's but it's like, list. if
1: you're a fan of, like, Pillars of the Earth, you should definitely look for this Anthony Powell series, because it is Epic.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, number they got two James Joyce in the top ten on this list. The top ten is Grapes of Wrath, Sons and Lovers, Darkness at Noon, Catch-22, The Sound and the Fury, Brave New World, Lolita is number four, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is number three, A Great Gatsby and Ulysses. I like James Joyce. We talked about James Joyce on the podcast. We haven't covered any of his stuff. I don't know. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is good, but like, I don't know. Why is that... Near the top and not like *Finnegans Wake*.
1: I think it is the most accessible.
0: You don't think *Dubliners* is the most access- accessible?
1: I think it. I think it lures people into thinking like I can get Joyce. Like, what's the big deal?
0: I guess you're right because Portrait of sure the Artist is more probably more approachable than *Finnegans Wake* and *Ulysses*. But it does have a little bit of that sauce. Like it's got a li- a couple, I think it has like a couple chapters of stream of consciousness. Like early on. Um
1: That's the Joyce novel that you read and you're like, I don't know why people make a big deal about stream of consciousness. It's pretty simple. And then you feel like you're smart as fuck because you read a James Joyce novel. And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to get into Ulysses. And then you're like, you turn jelly because it's kind of, yeah. extremely hard to process. Um, I still think about parts of that book like eight years after I read it.
0: Yeah. Well, we don't need to keep talking about James Joyce Sorry, right. we got to talk about a different James. So, the, she, here's my question now. James Joyce, famously horny writer. Is this book horny? Is, is Postman Always Rings Twice horny? I think,
1: I don't know because it's not really like sexually explicit.
0: I've heard people describe it as an erotic thriller, though. More specifically, so this film has been, I think it's been adapted seven or nine times, one, one of those numbers, I think. Uh, but the two most famous ones are, like, the original adaptation from the 40s, I believe.
1: 1946. And right. then
0: there's, like, a 1981 adaptation with Jack Nicholson, which... Wait, I've, does he
1: play Frank? yeah. Oh, my God.
0: It's kind of perfect casting, <laughs> um, which I is the one that I've seen. And I've seen... That is almost always described as an erotic thriller, and I wonder if it's just the presence of Jack Nicholson that makes people call it that.
1: I think that Kane just pushes... Like, there's not a graphic, like, explicit description no, they, of sex. They, they think- cut
0: away from... Well, you know, he glosses over... The facts.
1: But I think he gets right to the point where, as a screenwriter and as a journalist, I'm sure he was aware of, like, the, like, the amount that he could get away with before it was censored. Because, oh, I mean, sure. like, there, he's writing in a world where Henry Miller is already there, and he's a cautionary tale for writers about how much you can push before you get censored.
0: Wait, what? Henry Miller precedes him?
1: I don't think so. I think they might be contemporary. I think they were literally
0: born in the same year. Uh, when did... Tr- so...
1: <laughs> yeah, it would have
0: been around like a couple of years... Around the same time. Like, the Tropic of Cancer would have been 1934. Yeah. And this was 1931, right?
1: 1934 as well.
0: Oh, so they're just contemporaries.
1: They're just contemporaries. But I think what's happening now is the censorship movement is really gearing up now. And I think James Kane knows... He's worked in movies and he's worked in the newspaper. So he knows how much graphic violence and how much sexual energy he can put out. And I think he he kind of does. But I think the thing is, what's more interesting to me is not that it's like, yes, they're having like a highly charged sexual relationship, Hmm. but I think that what it's kind of like cutting edge for the 1930s is the way that he blends, not necessarily that's good or bad, But he blends, like, violence into their, like, courtship. Yeah. Because, like, at one point, like, Frank, like, punches her to, like, get her aroused. And then at one point, she wants to get bitten, and he bites her, and then he tells...
0: I don't remember the punch. I remember the bite.
1: So it's kind of like they're having, like, a romance, but it's, like, already, like different than, like, a normal romance. There's, like, some kind of, like, violence imbued in their relationship. Well, the violence,
0: I think, takes the place... So, like, I think you could almost view this as being a, like, just a a straight-up romance story with the act of violence replacing the act of sex and intimacy. Like, the culmination of their relationship, like, the catharsis of their courtship is an act of violence. Like, in the place, like, where like, the proposal would happen. Or like, a big dramatic kiss or something. Instead is them planning the murder and then trying to execute the murder of Nick.
1: So let's talk a little bit, like, well, let's talk a little bit about the characters and then the plot, and then we'll get into it.
0: So it's kind of really just three major characters in this story. There's Frank, who is a drifter. There's Cora, who is the, you know, the other protagonist, and she is married to a Greek diner owner, diner and gas station owner named Nick Papadakis, who is continually referred to as the Greek throughout the story. There's um,
1: a slight amount, we should mention that, there's a slight amount of, like, Casual racism and stereotyping.
0: The characters are awful people. I don't think that the st- the story has any sympathy for them. I would I will give James and Kane the benefit of the doubt, despite writing in the thirties that the racism and xenophobia expressed by the characters is supposed to be indicative of how shitty they are. They're they're very xenophobic about him being Greek,
1: and uh, then she also has a fear of being. Seen as a Mexican,
0: yeah, which is which. Honest. Like he then com- Frank then comforts her against this fear of being perceived as Mexican by uh, engaging in some stereotyping of Mexican people. But I think that's the thing. Like part of this story is, I think, about the lower classes' fear of the rev- rev- revocation. Is that a word? The revocation of whiteness. These are characters who are deeply gripped by the fear that their social standing will rob them of their racial categorization.
1: Which is kind of like, ironic that you picked this because it's kind of a situation that people in the post-Trump presidential world are kind of feeling. A lot of people are feeling that way. I mean, they're wrong and they're horrible people for feeling that way, but... They still feel that way. Yeah,
0: like, a a lot of Cora's opposition to Nick is in ways that he is perceived as being non-white. And a lot of the, almost everything she compliments Frank on are stereotypic qualities of whiteness. His light hair, his light skin, his perceived cleanliness, as opposed to Nick, who is perceived as being greasy and dirty and opportunistic.
1: So Frank is this sort of charismatic drifter, but he's also down on his luck because a lot of his grips don't pay off. So he's kind of like wandering around, working these small-time scams, and he ends up at the diner.
0: Well, the story has a lot of these interesting hanging ambiguities. There's a lot of things we just don't end up learning throughout the story. A lot of questions that are raised that are not explicitly answered. So Frank is at the diner initially because he's meeting someone for something. The guy never shows up, and we are never told what this is. If this was some crime he was going to commit, if this was some deal he was making, if he was going to murder this guy, all we know is that he is a a dude with no home who rides the road, who shows up at this place waiting for someone who never shows up, and then gets entangled in the lives of the operator of the diner and his wife.
1: Well, think about this. We're not going to reveal the ending of the story just now, but knowing the ending of the story, doesn't it make more sense that the information that is revealed about Frank is not maybe as truthful as it could be?
0: Well, the ending of the story draws the whole story into question. Right. Because Frank is a liar, and then at the end of the story, he tells us that he's... Uh, specifically writing this story down for people to read later about his life. So it's like, there's no telling that any of this really happened the way it did. Presumably, there was Nick and Cora, and he did something, and they both died at some point. But
1: other than that,
0: there's really nothing, like, in terms of the hard reality laying under the story, there's really nothing we can grasp on. But there's other stuff, too, because... When Nick is at the diner, when when Frank is at the diner, Nick approaches him and he asks him um, if he knows how to fix up cars, and hires him to work at the gas station slash diner. And Nick says that he's had all this other help over the years, who they all just leave very quickly. He can't hold on to anyone. I mean, part. So there's this question of like, is it because he's a bad boss? Is it because he keeps hiring drifters? Or is it because this isn't the first time this has happened?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Is it because his wife is like...
0: Every time they hire someone, she seduces them and asks them to murder her husband. (laughs) And then they leave because they don't want to murder her husband. And this story happens because Frank is the first guy who's dumb enough to fall for it.
1: I think that could be... I mean, that definitely could be what's going on here. But I think it's interesting because Cora is sort of... She's, you know, disenchanted of her lifestyle. She's married to a man that she really doesn't care about. She's in this sort of dead end situation where she works at a diner, and we learn later on that her backstory is she comes from Idaho or Iowa. It's Iowa. I Iowa. Think. And
0: home Slipknot. She w- <laughs> she and
1: wants James to- Kirk. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she wants to be an actress, and she ends up working in a hash house. And she has the sort of, a couple of, like, it's implied she has a couple of bad sort of experiences where she meets men like Frank Chambers.
0: Well, yeah, she's she's like, they're like, hey, why don't you have a little party? She's like, and I went to some of those parties. <laughs> yes. You know what those were like? And so it's like, yeah. I, I don't think she's supposed to have been a prostitute, but I think that there's been some creepy stuff in her past perpetrated. What exactly is a hash house? Let me ask that question. I think it's I like a
1: diner. Know. Where they specialize in serving breakfast and lunch only.
0: Okay. So it is like, it's like where uh, Sam Spade goes to get his horrible coffee.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of a little, it's like a downturn from a diner. But not as classy as like a coffee shop or restaurant. Yeah. So she marries Nick because he's nice and he doesn't abuse her. And he has economic Potential, yeah. So she ends up, and then they buy this sort of roadside cafe, which has a a gas station. That's yeah. I, I totally blanked on the word gas station for some weird reason. So it's kind of one of those things on the side of the highway in California, and I guess it's like right, sort of the rise of the like motor society where people are driving places and there's a lot of transportation going on and things like that
0: if you've seen chinatown or the superior who framed roger rabbit this is like happening in the wake of the rise of the like freeway in california so the you know the great asphalt serpent rises up and then you have all of these like little remoras on the side that are these like Stands And then, like, those also then give rise to the fast food giants and this whole thing. So, really, if you want to understand the history of America, you should watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Okay. Um, But I think
1: this takes place between, like, an area that's sort of still agriculturally, like, you know, there's a lot of farming going on. But it's on its way to, like, some major cities. And I think it's like, it looks like it's closer to San Francisco than it is to Los Angeles at this point. They go
0: to San Francisco at one point. Yeah, so I think it's further south, north? Yeah. North. Further north. than. So I think
1: what Nick is hoping to cash in on is, like, people driving their cars and stuff around. So Nick convinces Frank, and then Frank sort of cons Nick into thinking that he is both a good... Um, shooter or cook and works in cars and hires him to work in the diner and gives him a place to stay in his house.
0: Yeah. He convinces him to get a better sign. That's his big move. Yes. And then I think it is specifically while he's going, because he has a light bulb sign, which he's told is out of date. People like neon signs now. Yes. And he helps him design an elaborate neon sign that has the name of the restaurant, but it also just has his name under it.
1: Yes, and, a, and Greek, a Greek flag. Yes. And Nick is like... And he says sanitary, th- sanitary, which is very... Sanitary
0: bathrooms, <laughs> very I believe. But Nick is like, he's having a whole other story, right? Where he's his, off to the side, he has a sort of tragically shortened story about, like, the American dream and, like, trying to build generational wealth and become upwardly mobile. And he's, like, very invested in this, the success of this diner... But he's just not a great businessman. Uh, and then he gets murdered. But.
1: So while he. Frank convinces him after the sign blows out. And this is another thing. Like you put this down on things to look forward to. Like to to note is that they have electrical problems. Yeah. Yeah. So he convinces him to go to San Francisco to get a new sign. And while he's there. Frank seduces Clara because they have a sexual. Or vice versa. Yeah. They have this sexual tension. That's happening,
0: yeah. And this is where the cat thing starts because she has this whole speech when they're getting closer about how she's not a wild cat but she's got to become a wild cat to break or a hell cat to break free. Uh, and she tells him a little bit of her backstory. And and, because he suggests they like run away together, and she talks about how she has this fear that like that will only lead back to the situation she was back in that the road always leads back to the hash house, and she's terrified of ending up back in that position, but equally terrified of staying here or, like, continuing to be married to Nick.
1: Yeah, so then they start a sexual relationship, uh, an affair, but seedier than an affair, where they keep meeting for these sort of illicit rendezvous, and she gets more and more tired of it as she falls more and more for Frank. And I think this is also one of those things where it happens a lot in noir fiction, is these women fall for these, like, flawed men but in their minds they're so great yeah like immediately once she starts sleeping with frank he is so great that he's like he should not be working in a, a a mechanics business or whatever and he's so smart and he should be wearing suits and he should be a successful man and she kind of has all these dreams for him to be better than he is
0: So they come up with this plan to murder... She ends up talking him into it. I think that's the other thing here. It's like, Frank is this negative influence. like He's like this drifter. His presence precipitates the plot. But he's kind of an idiot who is dragged along... Sort of passive-aggressively by Cora. Like, she is the one who talks him into the idea that they deserve to have the diner. And they deserve to have the business. And he shouldn't have to go work in a parking lot wearing a smock... Which I don't know what that job is, but I guess just parking cars. <laughs> that's uh, but, a
1: huge thing in California. They have a lot of, like, valet parking. Uh,
0: so they need to murder Nick. Uh, and there's a secret life insurance claim, like, for, uh, what's the word? What's the word? Policy? Policy. That he doesn't know about, which like, that's another thing where it's like, did Cora know about the life insurance policy? Is that why? Did she seduce Frank to get him to murder Nick because of the life insurance policy? I don't know. It's all ambiguous. But the plan is he's gonna give her a sugar sack, with ball bearings sewn into it, and then he's when they're gonna wait for him to be taken his bath.
1: Right, because they're gonna go out. They're all going out somewhere for mm-hmm. to celebrate something. Oh, the new sign, maybe.
0: I think something like that. Uh, and this is another thing. She keeps saying Nick is dirty, but the half the murder is contingent on him to taking a bath. So
1: well, I think she's kind of leaning into that stereotype. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like, about the
0: non whiteness. It's about the like foreign character. Yeah. Uh
1: but he's very proud because he's a he is now a US citizen. At one point he makes a um he shows like a, a book and yeah. he has a his naturalization situation. that's the
0: saddest part of the whole story <laughs> I think so he's going to take this sugar sack with ball bearings in it this blackjack made out of a sugar sack and blackjack sugar, shat, sugar <laughs> sack is my favorite blues man and also my favorite stand-up comedian from the 80s uh, he was great in Police Academy 12.
1: So, Nick's going to take it. This is very specific detail. He takes a bath, and then at some point, he stands up in the bath, and he turns on the shower, and he rinses off. And at that point, she's supposed to hit him on the head, on the back of the head, with the ball bearing.
0: Well, first, Frank is going to distract him by going into the bathroom and saying that he's looking for his razor. Because then he might get up to help him, but if Cora went in there, he would just stay on the bath. So when he gets up, she's gonna hit him on the back of the head with, the, or I guess on the back of the head, with the blackjack. And then they're gonna make it look like he slipped and fell in the bathtub. Yes,
1: and then Frank is supposed to wait outside to make sure no people show up, cause the diner is closed, but sometimes people show up and beep the horn and they get served. So, this is a con, this is like...
0: So it goes, it goes wrong because a policeman shows up and has an innocuous conversation, uh, with, Frank, and they see a cat walking along a, a, up a stepladder. Frank was trying to get the cat to get off on the stepladder, because it's approaching, like, the electrical transformer <laughs> or something. And then the cop shows up and distracts him, and then he's like, Hey, look at that cat. That's a beautiful cat. And then the cat steps on the electrical transformer, and it's electrocuted to death, <laughs> and cuts out the power in the diner. And, and then
1: he stands up. Yeah. before the plan and then she hits him she only half-heartedly hits him on the head because she's the lights are out and there's like confusion and he falls in the bathtub and he they think he's dead and they try to take him out and they realize well the real
0: problem is she calls down she does the murder but because it's dark, she can't see anything I think this is how it works yeah and she calls out to Frank before the policeman leaves right. I think so there's someone else there
1: so they have to make it look like he fell in the bathtub so they take him to the hospital, and his fractured skull, and he doesn't die. And he believes, he can't really remember what happened, but he believes that when the lights went out, he fell, and that's how he fractured his skull. So Frank and Cor don't say anything, and they cover up this failed murder attempt.
0: Yeah, and there's, like, a news story about him. People are intrigued about the detail of the cat dying. The policeman is really (laughs) sad about the cat. He's like, that was a beautiful cat. And it just killed it right dead. I mean, it just... There's this dialogue quirk in this story. And um, in all of Kane's writing, as far as I know, uh, that then, in a way, kind of becomes a hallmark of, like, noir and hardboiled stuff afterward, of just, like, very looping, repetitive dialogue, where people... There's a lot of, like, a character says something and then another character says it back to them. Uh, or a guy just repeating a phrase over and over again. So he keeps saying, talking, he's saying, I think, killed it dead over yeah. and over again. About the cat lamenting the death of this beautiful stray cat that got electrocuted. Which is the second weird cat thing. I don't know what this means. I guess it's supposed to be, like, like Frank is, like, a stray cat. Like, he's, like, a tomcat or something. He, the cat represents him. He falls into this trap. Like, he's going to get fucked over by the end of the story, too. Um, or the cat represents Cora and she's like the wrench in the works or something. But, Frank leaves after that, right?
1: No, no, no. They, they spend the week that he's in the hospital together Mm. and then Cara gets to the point where, this is where she said she's afraid that people will think that she's a Mexican because she's dark skinned and she works as in a diet. She
0: also makes enchiladas. When he compliments her on the enchilada. So the part where the Mexican thing first comes up is he has an enchilada for lunch and he says, compliments her on it and says, you people sure know how to make a good enchilada. And she's like, that's triggers her. She goes off because she thinks that he thinks she's Mexican, which he definitely does. But he tries to play it off where he's like, I meant you people as in you people who run this diner.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: make a good enchilada. And then he, yeah.
1: So then they make these sort of half-hearted plans that they're going to leave...
0: She's also afraid that people will call her Mrs. Papadakis, which is another thing where she's like, she has, they're both terrified that, you know, capitalism has robbed them of anything except this undue pride in their, the perceived superiority of their ethnicity. Like, they're completely, you know, they're total losers, but they're terrified that someone's going to think that they're foreign or non-white.
1: Yeah, so when she – when so then they decide to leave, and they pack their stuff, and then they're walking to the
0: oh yeah stop, stop
1: and she says, I can't deal with this, and she, she wants to go back home. She goes back home, and they bring Nick home, and then Frank leaves. Yeah. And then he goes on this – I guess at some point he's traveling around doing his grift, and he ends up getting like $250 that he wins – Playing pool.
0: Which he then immediately loses.
1: Well, well, his first plan is, because she doesn't want to work in a diner anymore, so his plan is, he's going to take the $250 and he's going to buy a hot dog cart.
0: Mm-hmm. And they're
1: going to live at the beach and sell hot dogs. Yeah, because he's an idiot. <laughs> so then he goes back in the town and he's hanging around in the town trying to, this is where you learn, like, Frank's not a very good director.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He's hanging around the town. They either run into Nick or chorus so that he can sort of reignite their relationship. He not a Nick,
0: but it's after he loses the money. Right,
1: but meanwhile, he's in the town. He has a $250, and he's like, well, you know what? I might as well try to double it, and, and then we could do, like, something else. They can improve the hot dog cart in some way.
0: There's something is up with, like, there's this, like, dude's who, like, came to a of age before, like, the 70s have this, or, like, around, like, well, maybe before the 80s, they've got this bizarre brain. Like, the <laughs> way that this character thinks reminded me a lot of my grandfather in some ways, where it's, like,
1: why not get a job? Why not tell hot dogs?
0: Yeah, like, well, you might as well just try and gamble it, and it's, like, what? You're gonna lose it! <laughs> like, it's, like, they've got this, like... You know, they've listened to too many jingly guitar solos, and their brain's all scrambled.
1: First of all, every time I read a story that has a platform that involves a hot dog cart, I immediately think of con- be- oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, he has a serious idea to get this hot dog cart. But then he's hanging out in a pool hall, and he says, well, let me try to double my money. And then he meets, of course, another drifter who's yeah. also a pool hustler, And they hustle each other, and then Frank ends up losing all of his money, and he can't even buy the hot dog cart. And then he runs into Nick, and Nick's like, come on back, come on.
0: And Nick's got a new suit, and he's looking sharp, and he's, like, parlayed, getting his skull fractured in a cat-related accident, into becoming, like, a minor local celebrity. And, like, this is, again, like, getting at this, like, these ideas, The, the mainstream newspapers... Report on the absurdity of the cat. The Greek newspaper reports on fine upstanding citizen Nick Papadakis and his tragic accident. Uh, and he shows him the ex- he takes him back and like basically asks him to come on vacation with them.
1: Yes, cause he wants to win him back because he- he likes Frank and Frank was a good like asset to the donner because he was like a smoocher like a you know, he's a hustler and he kept like he he has that kind of outgoing personality that can get people interested. And then also I think Nick sees him as this sort of representative like like an upstanding American man.
0: Yeah. Who,
1: you know, he looks good while he's working on your car
0: and he has ideas that he lets Nick take credit for. Yes. Too, which I think is very appealing to him. Um, or alternatively, uh, Nick is just very clumsy and slow at asking people if they want to be a third in his relationship.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, he comes back and Cora immediately gets her hot pants on and she's completely back into loving Frank and and being obsessed with having a relationship with Frank. Well, now
0: she's super desperate because the first thing Nick does when he gets Frank back is he shows him uh this scrapbook he's making, which is where you see all the newspaper clippings, where you see the the ones from the mainstream newspapers and the ones from the Greek newspaper. And he also shows them all the successive x rays of his skull healing. Uh which is funny it's like, look at this, look at the here's a time lapse of your crime failing. <laughs> um and Cora is desperate now to be rid of him because she reveals that the reason he was making the scrapbook was is to show it to his kids. Because now he wants kids. He talks about, Frank has this weird speechy thing he says about how like Nick is acting like a bigger man now that he's had his skull broken. Um, and he says it's something like, it's like an Italian that, did, that bought a restaurant or something or?
1: Yeah, now he's too good to, to wear like a mechanic suit. You know, he, he wears the suit at work instead of wearing like, you know, his like chef outfit. Yeah. He's putting on all these airs. So they decide they're going to go to, is it Monterey?
0: I forget where they're going.
1: They want to go, they're going to go somewhere, San Bernardino or yeah. someplace. They're going to go someplace to a fiesta, which is like the way that Nick describes it. It seems like it's like a, like block party or like community fair and there's Mm. gonna be a lot of drinking and music and dancing and they want Frank to come. Yeah. And this is where I think this is where the plot kind of falls down because the plan to like
0: Well the plan is to fake a car accident.
1: Yeah, but it's so complicated. Because they're
0: paranoid at this point. (laughs) Frank has gotten all of these bizarre this is like another thing where it's like jingly guitar brain where he's, like, got all these elaborate, bizarre ideas where he's like, I have to be drunk but not super drunk and I have to give them the wrong story first and then I tell them the real story later but it's actually a fake story. But they'll think that that's the real story because I've corrected it from the previous double-fake story. Uh,
1: and then her, like, she's obsessed with, like, worrying about... Her job is to climb up the hill
0: mm-hmm. and
1: stop a car and say, there's been a car accident. But she's super paranoid about climbing up the hill without her purse. And then there's this conversation about, like, are they going to believe that a woman would leave a car without her Mm. purse? And it's kind of like.
0: But then he's got to get. He also has to get. Frank has to get Nick drunk. And his plan to do that is by ostentatiously drinking himself. To convince Nick that he also wants to drink. So, now so he he's to- gotta be drunk <laughs> <laughs> when the crime happens or else he won't be able to get Nick drunk. So then Cora has to drive the car because they're both drunk.
1: Right. She's in the car with these two drunks and she single-handedly has to crash the car, stage the murder, and then deal with Frank to make, so that he could be injured. Yeah. And then there's another part which is like astonishing to me is that She gets out of the accident, and she's not banged up enough, so Frank beats her up.
0: Yes, he does. And Uh, then
1: meanwhile, while he's beating her up, (laughs) he falls under the car, mm -hmm. and then he gets hurt even more than he did when he was in the accident.
0: Yeah. So then Nick is dead at this point. They successfully kill Nick in the fake car accident, and Frank is hospitalized, and... Uh, And
1: Cora is beat up.
0: Yeah. And he gives them the fake, fake story. And then he gives them the real fake story. He likes real jazz and he likes real fake jazz. Uh, and the, it turns out that Nick has this, uh, life insurance policy that supposedly neither of them knew about. Frank definitely didn't know about. two
1: life insurances. One that Cora knew about and then the second one. That he signed up with when the man was visiting the diner and he didn't tell his wife.
0: Because, yeah, I think the idea with that is because that was the beginning of him planning to have kids, right? Yeah.
1: So they get the police detective who's investigating this crime has this idea that Cora planned this murder and is using Frank to do it. And so he tries to get Frank to turn on her. And then Frank, realizing that there's no way to get out of this, does turn on her and then when she finds out, she gets insulted and she makes a confession.
0: Well, okay. So what happens is, yeah, the prosecutor uh, basically figures out what happened. Uh, and he decides that the way he's going to do this is he charges Cora and coerces Frank into signing a, a complaint against her, uh, which then makes Cora furious. And then she decides that she's going to give a confession. But her lawyer comes up with a plan to trick her into thinking that she's talking to a police detective, but it's actually his private detective. So she gives a full confession to uh, the private detective.
1: And this is the, one of the most wild parts. The prosecutor... The, her lawyer is doing this because... He wants the confession to take to the insurance agencies, both of the insurance agencies, to pit them against each other because it's going to be cheaper for them to cut a deal to get her out of jail than it is to pay off both of those insurance claims. So they cut this kind of weird deal where she doesn't get, she gets acquitted of the crime and they have to pay her $10,000 but they save so much money about not paying these two insurance claims out mm-hmm. that the insurance companies act as advocates to get Cora out of jail.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, because they've got their own executive who's like the lead witness or whatever. So they get him to recant his testimony, which means that the state has to offer a plea bargain, which Cora takes. Uh, and so she doesn't do any jail time. But now she has
1: a suspended sentence that hangs over her head.
0: Yeah, and the lawyer has the written the the, the written confession. Uh, and but so then,
1: then he tries to take the lawyer tries to take the half of the money, uh-huh. and then he's like, "Ah, oh, now you guys are great. You pulled the greatest scam. You know what? You deserve all the ten thousand dollars." And then he gets the ten thousand dollars. But here's the thing: why do so many detective stories? have to deal with insurance.
0: First. I, is it somebody's detector choice or is it just this one guy who <laughs> lo- fucking loves insurance? Because that's what I thought when I was reading it. I was like, this motherfucker loves insurance.
1: <laughs> he does. He goes long and lovingly into like getting a policy and... Yeah, I guess so it's And like they keep
0: using the word indemnity in this story yeah. too. And I was it's like kind it's of like, like
1: stay tuned for the yeah. next
0: book. It's like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> indemnity shows up at the end of the Postman Always Rings twice <laughs> to set up double indemnity.
1: <laughs> you thought indemnity once was great. Wait do you hear this novel?
0: So yeah, he's basically like that's another thing that feeds your paranoia because he's basically like, Ha ha ha, I know about your crime, I don't care. I'm a lawyer, whatever.
1: He's like, I just love it how you twisted these two insurance companies into there's two things that he loves. He loves railroad crime, which is another thing where you get you realize that Frank has been revealed to have like numerous um crimes he's, against railroad detectives. He's strong
0: from punching railroad <laughs> detectives, is the thing that he says I think twice in this story.
1: So he loves railroad crimes, he loves insurance, and he loves this sort of like Is Frank a hobo? Oh. I think he, I think he is. Yeah, he's not. I think Drifter kind of implies a higher quality. If there's like a status level, there's a cast system for like shady male individuals in 1930s crime novels, then like Hobo is the bottom and Drifter is like above it. Yeah. So they get the money.
0: Yeah, and so they start working like, uh, at the diner and Frank is revealed that he is to his core a Drifter. Like, Cora starts building up the diner and getting all of these plans to start a beer garden and to make the food nicer and to, like, really turn it into a a real establishment. And he just wants to bail. He wants to sell it and and cut and run. You
1: forgot another important plot point.
0: I think I might be getting to it.
1: No, no. That happens before Nick is killed. He, Cora wants to leave. Yeah. And Frank says, sure. And then she assumes they're going to take Nick's car. Mm-hmm. And then, Frank makes a point of saying, this is uh, so you know how shady Frank is, Frank makes a point of saying, like, it's one thing to steal another man's wife, but you can't steal another man's car.
0: Well, cause that's an actual crime, actual grand larceny, he says. Uh, he doesn't want to, like, but he's also just planning, he also tried to murder him. <laughs> like, but he won't steal his car. But, he gets all restless, And she goes away to go to her mom's funeral. Yeah, this is so great. And this is bonkers. He, he, like, leaves and, like, drifts around a little bit. And, like, I think goes back to San Francisco or something. And he starts an affair with a lion tamer.
1: Right. Well, first she says she is, like, a cat farm. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, we'll just call someone and take care of these cats. He immediately, he goes from, like, zero to 100. Yeah. He's always, like, he meets a lady, and the next thing you know, he's like, let's have an affair. Let's run away together. And then she says, would you like, he says, would you like to go down to Mexico for a weekend? And he takes her to Mexico, but then when he goes to her farm to get someone to watch the cats, he realizes that they're, like large cats that they use for like
0: movies yeah like pan- movies, panthers is like, yeah she raises big cats to and then sells them and then also has them in movies uh
1: so there's a huge industry for big wild cats yeah. so he has to solicit fair i mean she's literally the hellcat that frank is looking but
0: for. no she's the tamer right like she's like it's a greater power right Like, he realizes, like, she's more self-assured and self-aware. She has her own thing. She doesn't, like, need him. So he doesn't have to feel any kind of obligation toward her.
1: Yeah, so they go to Mexico. And they have this, like, booze-fueled relationship. And he comes back. And Cora comes back. And she says, oh, Frank, my mom died. And Frank's like, oh, I feel bad. she's like, first he's like, what happened to the diner or the cafe? And he's like, Oh, I closed it for a little vacation. And he says, oh, I feel bad if I wouldn't, if I would have known that your mom was dying, I wouldn't went to Mexico. So then the things go on. And then it turns out that the lady shows up at some point and brings like a puma (laughs) cub to Frank. And that's how Cora finds out about the affair. And then she's kind of like, Frank, what did you do when I was on vacation, when I was there, my mother was dying. He was like, oh, it's just kind of like hanging out. And then she was like, well, how do you explain this?
0: But then they patch up their relationship, like, immediately, because they're...
1: Well, then, I think then he realizes that he can't do his drifting. He can't sort of leave. Yeah. And then, so they have a horrible fight, and it's very violent. Oh, well,
0: she reveals that she's pregnant, Paul. and possibly like, she... Nick's kid.
1: Yes, and then they're having a fight, and it's going on and on, and he finally sort of says, well, why don't we get married? They make this plan to get married, so they go to the city hall, and they get married. And I just keep saying, get married. Yeah. So they go to City Hall. They get hitched.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were talking like a person in this story.
1: (laughs) Yes. That's exactly it. I'm a, you know, I'm the, you know, secondary character in this. The lady who watches them from the window get married. (laughs) (laughs) So they go to the beach and she's kind of tired. And he says, okay, well, you know, you take a rest. I'll drive. And he has no malicious intent. That's what he says. And it ends up having a car accident. And Cora is killed. Yeah. And then the uh, coroner finds out that not only was she killed, but she was pregnant.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
1: he puts together her husband's accidental car accident and the shadiness of Frank. And dun-dun-dun, when you think there's going to be, like, repentance happening. Frank is arrested for the murder of Cora, even though he didn't murder Cora, but he... And so then you realize that the whole book is a jailhouse confession. Yeah. Which makes sense because in the beginning, Frank tries to make himself look better than he is. But then he, his defense is, I might have killed this other guy, but I did not kill Cora. And even though he wasn't committed for the crime, he wasn't arrested for the crime of Nick, he's arrested for the murder of Cora and he ends up on death row.
0: Yeah. And then that's basically it. Like, he... he, The story ends with him being like, you know, I hope people read this after they put me to death. And But
1: then I guess in between the... Okay, in between the part where he's... Frank is called out for his affair with the wild cat tamer. He gets blackmailed by the yeah, prosecutor's yeah. assistant who has as a confession.
0: And they... He, he beats the shit out of that guy. Does he kill that guy, too?
1: No, but Cora keeps wanting him to get beat up more. And this is when you realize that Cora is complacent in the violence that's happening around Frank. Mm-hmm. And that she may or may not have done the same thing, like you said, with other men. Which is why they kept leaving the diner. Yeah. So, they end up sort of brutalizing this man. And threatening him with the Puma at one point. And then... Frank ends up going to jail, but then, interestingly enough, he brings up the fact that the police go to the diner after Cora dies, and they find the puma there, and he's kind of, like, he's still alive, but he's kind of, like, in bad shape, and so they take him away, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, James M. Cain like, wraps up every loose end at the very end, even what happens to the cat.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's the Postman Always Rings Twice. No notice that there was no Postman (laughs) in the story. There I there is no Postman, no Postman Rings. What what do you make of that title? Well I've heard people say that it's just supposed to be a red herring.
1: It is a red herring and Kane admits that. But the thing is is that originally it was implied during the success of the book and the movie that the Postman Always Rings Twice was sort of a nod to like you would know someone was coming by the way they rang. So if, so if they were having an affair during the day and they heard doorbell and it rang twice, they would know that it was just the postman.
0: See, I know- James
1: M. Kane says that he got the name from a conversation he had with another writer. He never says who the writer is. But the writer is down on his luck and he keeps waiting for like an acceptance letter. Mm-hmm. And every time... He hears the doorbell, he gets nervous, but then he says, I know it's not the mail because the postman always rings twice. So he would go out into the the yard and wait for the two doorbells so he could check and see if he got an acceptance letter for one of his novels. And James Kane said that he thought that that phrase, the postman always rings twice, was very beautiful and he wanted to use it.
0: Okay, so it's supposed to imply like these characters are like waiting and scrambling for something better and that's like indicative of that. Excuse me. I thought it was the only thing I could really think of with no context was that it was like a nod towards like their paranoia, towards like the weird stuff that um starts dominating Frank's thinking when he's when he's coming up with a plan to like get drunk and lie twice and all this stuff where it's like an innocuous detail that someone overly fixates on.
1: Yeah, and I think that I guess the way Kane described it was he had picked that title because he liked the way it sounded and it had this meaning to him and his friend like a secret nod but with the success of the movie and the book it was sort of this theory came out that it might have been like this sort of metaphor about like waiting for something good to happen or waiting for some kind of moral judgment to happen like god is a symbol for the postman or whatever and they made this sort of meaning of the title that made the title seem more prophetic than sort of poetic, which was how Cain wanted it, and he never said anything until later on because that title and what it meant to people made the book sell more, made the movie more popular.
0: Well, I think it's comforting if someone is really bad at coming up with names and titles, like you can just kind of do whatever, uh, and people will just read whatever meaning they want to, into it, if the story in and of itself is good enough.
1: But, I mean, would you, if, like, if it was called The Drifter, I mean, The Postman Always Rings Twice gives this, impl- you know, implied literary sort of value to it. But if it was called something like The Drifter or, you know, My Husband is Dead or something like that, it would be like a Pulp Fiction novel and it wouldn't have this sort of staying power.
0: Oh, I'm not saying it's a, it's a very good title. I'm not saying it's a bad title. I was just curious as to, like, what the deal with it is because it is not... Indicative of anything that happens in the story.
1: Yeah, and I think it's like, also, like, it could be like, you know, the postman rings twice, two murders, two attempted murders, or whatever, or two murders that were successful. That's. So, because, I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where it doesn't really mean anything.
0: No, no, no. Um, yeah. Do we have anything else to say about this? I think, like, I joked about the dialogue being really, really kind of not. I joked about the dialogue having this sort of, that sort of repetition quirk, but I actually think it's really good. Like, it is, it's very, very stylized. The whole story is very stylized. Uh, but it is that, like, snappy. Like, you can see how this book in particular was a huge influence on cinema around that time and right afterwards.
1: Well, I think, too, one of the things that I like about James M. Kane is that he doesn't sort of get himself bogged down in this sort of. Like, he writes about a culture, and he writes about contemporary times, so he uses, like, modern language and modern linguistic styles, but he doesn't really get into that sort of stereotype that you see, like, with Chandler and, you know, all the other... Oh, yeah. You she know, was, like, she they, had legs,
0: and she knew how to use them. You don't yeah. get any of that. Like, it's yeah. much more sort of straightforward.
1: Yeah, and I think I, mean, I like his style. I think if you think about when he was writing, it's sort of very edgy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that was a time of, like, romantic um stories, and men who were very heroic, and then you see, like, Nick, who's kind of like this sort of milky, toasty kind of guy, who's kind of just, like, you know, floating through life, and he's got this, like, black widow of a wife, and then you see Frank, who's like this edgy drifter, who's up to no good, I mean, there's really nothing sort of like it at that time, and I think, like, that kind of made him seem... You know, like, really cutting edge. And I think, like, Faulkner, he really has a way to, like, set the tension. Because, I mean, there's really, like you said, there's, like, only three characters in the whole novel. And it's a very short span of time when things happen. There's only one or two scenes where things are going on. And then so you get this whole compacted, very compressed relationship with three people in it. In a kind of very sparse, well-written, well-driven, tension-based story.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's got a very clear three-act structure. It almost reads like a play in and some I ways. I kind
1: of think like, that sets the tone. Like, American male writers get into this sort of style. Like, you think about Steinbeck and Faulkner mm-hmm. and Hemingway... They all sort of follow that same contemporary style, the three acts, well, the sparse characters, and things like that.
0: I think it's also this kind of, like, this cyclical influence where it's like, these guys write in these very crisp three-act structures, uh, and that influences the early screenwriters. And then, I well, literally just talked about this on another podcast, but you have Sid Field writes screenplay in the 70s, and, like code really heavily like codifies and promotes the three act structure which then further influences writers uh and it become it like permeates the like American like style
1: yeah and I think if you think about like American crime fiction as like literary novels that have a crime in them you think about other writers I mean like I was thinking about like um, Jonathan Lethem, like him, he's highly influenced. He has to be highly influenced oh, by I'm James sure. M. Cain. And you think about like Jim Thompson and James Elroy, mm-hmm. and even like Patricia Highsmith. Their crime novels are like Cain novels in that they're not graphic murder stories, but mm-hmm. the tension and the intentions of the people sets these sort of noir tones, and you can see the influence that Cain has on people like that. I mean, you talk about, like, Walter Mosley and the Attica Loft. Like, these are modern crime writers. Mm -hmm. They're still using devices that Cain came up with. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really interesting. But, I mean, I think, like, this is the start, like you said, of, like, bringing literary devices into filmmaking. And, like, we talked a lot about this when we talked about Graham Greene. But I think, like, Greene is a novelist that is almost like James Cain. Yeah. And I think you can see that. And I think, like, when people talk about the post-World War II novel, I think even though Kane is pre-World War II, the fact that his novels came to popularity during World War II, especially with the Army editions, Whoa. that kind of literary style influences post-World War II writers.
0: Yeah. But I, I think that, like, there's a strain of, like, like I said, like, bitter, bitterness and nihilism in this that I would compare to, like, the Lost Generation writers. I think he's sort of, like, coming off of that same wave. Uh, like, this isn't, like, totally unmoored from, like, traditional morality. Like, it's not like a, you know, it's not No Country for Old Men or anything like that, but it's like, yes, the two people that tried to do the murder die, but also, like, when Nick... When, not Nick, when Frank is brought to justice, it's for, if we're to believe him, a crime he didn't commit that is not the one that he deserves to be punished for. And there's this kind of, like, you know, there is no sense that the universe is balanced out at the end. It's just, like, a bunch of horrible things have happened.
1: Well, yeah, that's why I kind of compared him a little bit more to Faulkner. Mm -hmm. Even though he doesn't create, like, the worldscape that Faulkner does where he keeps going back to the same characters... I think he is more like Faulkner than he is like Hemingway because he has, his, what happened to writers in World War One is a different experience about what happens to writers in World War Two, and even what happened to writers like you look at writers who wrote during the Vietnam War or after the Vietnam War. Their war experiences are all completely different. So James M. Kane is coming from a war that kind of, you know, it's not a dirty war at this point, but it's not as glamorous and as, like, idealized as World War II. And I think you see that. Because, like, the men who come after World War II, they're, like, a different type of detective, a different type of, like, well, male.
0: Yeah. Also, all those guys come back from the war and become gangsters, yeah. like. <laughs> uh But, yeah, like, I think that. I don't know, I think, I think you can also, like, we've talked about all these other influences, but I think that there's also something whereas I, where the stuff like this I see as being like a direct antecedent to like dirty realism.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, like, where it's like well, these same scumbag characters, but what if, there isn't a crime. What if it's just about their lives?
1: Like, if you were... If you had, like, you were building, like, a literary family tree, mm-hmm. and you had James N. Kane, like, you could, through a certain amount of machinations, you could come to someone like Cormac McCarthy. Easily. Yeah. More easily than I think you could come to that by following, like, a Hemingway branch to get to Cormac McCarthy. And I think the things like Jim Thompson, like... You Those kinds of writers, they take the best parts of what they like about crime novels. Like someone like Thompson, you'd be like, okay, he's more like Chandler and Dashiell Hammett than he is like James M. Kane. But if you think of like, I'm trying to think of the novels about a relationship in the suburbs in the 1950s, which came out like in the 1980s. Like, he, like James M. Kane did more to influence... Writers who write about relationships.
0: Like Franzen, is that? Oh, ugh. what you're trying to get at? I mean, that's what I think of as suburban. I'll
1: have to, I'll have to think about it. No, I don't think he's like Fran I don't think Franzen takes anything from James Kane. His characters are just awful people. But I was thinking about like those 1950s bedroom dramas, you know, where the man works in advertising and he has an affair and... It, destroys his whole family and he accidentally... It's like, um, maybe like Appointment in Samara or like a Sherwood Anderson kind of novel mm-hmm. that comes later on.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, Do we have anything else to say about The Person I Always Thinks Twice?
1: I thought it was good. I like James Kane. I like the way that he writes. I like his style. I think he definitely influences modern yeah. writers. I theme. think
0: we've said that enough in Who enough ways. Who do you ways. think...
1: Who do you think is most influenced by a writer like James M. King?
0: Uh, the Cohen brothers.
1: You think? Yes, I could definitely see that.
0: I know that's not—they're not like literary. Right? I mean, they're they're filmmakers, but I think that mo- the bulk of his influence, like if, if it was mass, the the greater mass of his influence ended up in cinema more so than literature. Not that it isn't also he isn't also super influence influential in the literary world.
1: Yeah, because I think if you think about like I don't. Did they do Road to Perdition?
0: One of them. Wait, I think one of them wrote it. That was based on a comic. We should cover that comic.
1: But I was thinking Sam like, Mendes
0: directed it. I know that.
1: I think like those kinds of stories and novels are very much influenced by Kane's style.
0: No, they didn't. They would self wrote it. But yeah, I, yeah, I could totally see that.
1: Or like Miller's Crossing, like that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I was I was thinking of stuff like. Even though it's like silly, like there's a there's an injection of like a Looney Tunes energy, I think that something like Raising Arizona, which is also about like down on the luck dirt bags doing a crime caper and then like things coming to a head around them, like feels it feels like this plus Looney Tunes you get raising Arizona. And like Even something like the Big Lebowski, I feel like has a little bit of it, even though that's more directly obviously influenced by Chandler because it's literally based on The Big Sleep. And then you have like, you know, not the Coen brothers, but there's there's stuff like A Simple Plan, like these kinds of the things that would go on to influence The Game Fiasco. These like uh, stories of like people planning a crime and it going poorly. Fargo is similar.
1: Oh yeah, definitely.
0: This idea where it's like, here's a story about a crime and if everything goes wrong and it's not cool and what like that? everyone's kind of a dirt bag.
1: What is that? Oh, gross point. Yeah. Like that's another good example of that. And that's literally like a crime gone wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what do we have coming up?
0: Uh so our next Speaking episode Speaking
1: of flawed figures, flawed characters.
0: I guess. Uh yeah, our next thing that we're gonna do is uh we're gonna do Doom Patrol, volume one, the first volume of the Great Morrison uh Doom Patrol run. I believe this volume is called Crawling from the Wreckage.
1: So now did he did they create the Doom Patrol or it existed previous to
0: The their... Doom Patrol appeared like the same week as the X Men.
1: Okay, so this is another case of a writer. Either reconstituting or reimagining an existing comic.
0: Yeah, I mean, team. even more so than other, uh, times that we've, other ones that we've covered, this is closer to Swamp Thing where it's like issue, like this starts at issue 19 of this, of this volume of, uh, or you know, this run of Doom Patrol. Issue 18 is written by a different writer, issue 19. Morrison takes over and radically reinvents okay. the comic. Uh, but yeah, but this is the run that the show is based on. Okay. So this has, like, most of the characters you would see in the show. Uh, well, we'll talk about the history of the Doom Patrol at the start of the episode, I think. I don't think there's a ton you need to know going in. I mean, I didn't really know anything about these characters the first time I read this comic. Uh, this was not the first Morrison thing I ever read. I, the first thing I ever read was his X-Men run. Uh, which I became obsessed with, and then was told, like, to go check this out. And so I read. Start so that the next more the thing I read was this Doom Patrol. The thing.
1: only thing that I remember about the Doom Patrol was when you were hanging out at the comic book store. This was the height of the hero clips. Yeah, this was In when it, I read it. One of the the I think it was the owner of the store asked me if it was okay for you to read Doom Patrol. And I honestly didn't know what Doom Patrol was and honestly didn't care. And I figured, like, people can read whatever they want, so I said yes.
0: Yeah, I think because that was, like, the first, like, Vertigo thing I bought. Because I started reading that – I was reading, like, buying the individual volumes and reading them of that and Swamp Thing at the same time. And that was the first one where it was, like – This is ostensibly for more mature readers.
1: But I didn't have the heart to admit that I had already let you read Sin City. Yeah. So then I didn't want to look like, one, a bad librarian, and two, like an awful mom. So I just said yes.
0: Uh, But yeah, we're going to read that. um, And that's going to be cool. And then our next novella is The Lamb Will Slaughter the Lion by Margaret Killjoy.
1: I haven't read that, so I'm kind of excited. We're hitting some new...
0: I haven't read either. I've been meaning to for a while, which is why I put it on our list to do for the podcast because it's appropriate length. Okay. Uh, And, yeah. So that's going to be our next two things. Uh, Spoiler alert. Stay tuned.